You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. You're right, it is a pub. Okay, well, what do you say? We go in for a little food, huh? drink, rest? The slaughtered lamb... That's kind of strange. Where's the lamb? It's probably inside getting cold. Come on. No, really. What kind of ad is that for a pub? I don't know. Would you rather the Hilton? All right. But whatever happens, it's, it's your fault. fault. Right. All right, come on. We'll find out if any of Eddie's killings were on a full moon. Hey, that's a lot of Hollywood baloney. Your classic werewolf can change shape any time it wants, day or night, whatever it takes a notion to. That's why I call them shapeshifters. I got a dozen books on it. What about killing it with silver bullets? Well, sure. Silver bullets are fire. It's the only way to get rid of the damn things. They're worse than cockroaches. They come back from the dead if you don't kill them right. Plus, they regenerate. You know what that is? Cut off an arm, cut off a leg, stick a knife in a heart, nothing. They may look dead, but bam, three days later, they're as good as new. Do you believe in this? What am I, an idiot? I'm making a buck here. You want books? I got books. I got chicken blood, I got dog embryos, I got black candles, I got wolf brain. Look at this. Silver bullets. Some joker ordered them. 3006. Never picked them up. I take Bank America, American Express, Visa. You gonna buy that or what? Uh, yeah, these two. The wolf was bailing. You think I don't know the difference between a wolf and a man? Baylor became a wolf, and you killed him. A werewolf can be killed only with a silver bullet or a silver knife or a stick with a silver handle. You're insane. I tell you, I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long, bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. So it's been a little while since we've discussed werewolves, and I know that they're one of Blake's favorite monsters. So we thought it would be fun to revisit them and to highlight some continuing controversies and confusion about werewolf lore, the beast of Gévaudan, and perhaps even a science fair project for someone to try. So Welcome to the show, Blake. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> it's been I'm, a while. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to be back. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a really fun topic, and I don't think we've talked about werewolves for a while now, have we? It's been if a I had, a you know, if I had to pick a favorite monster, uh, werewolves have probably had more influence on my life than any other monster. So I'd have to go. With, just, yeah. So that's a strange thing to say and to quantify it with monsters. <laughs> well, <laughs> more, I, more yeah. influence on your life. Well, they have, though, if you think about it. I mean, the uh, first of all, uh, I've loved them for my entire life. Um, mm -hmm. But also uh, my my current wife, who I expect to be my only wife, uh, 
(laughs) (laughs) Unless she hears this. (laughs) No, no, no. Our very first, I I don't know if I should call it a date, but uh, when we think about like when we met, the, the, the first movie we watched together, uh, that that she acknowledges. Let me add that because I think we technically, <laughs> technically we watched the Kentucky Fried movie first. But the the movie she wanted to watch was the uh, American Werewolf in London, and uh, uh, and we watched that. How romantic! <laughs> it, it's pretty awesome. I really like that movie a lot. We watch it fairly frequently. We just rewatched it with our kids, and uh, it really does capture a lot of the lore. And I'm including a, I'm including a little bit of the audio in the uh, intro to this episode. So. Uh, what do your kids think of the movie? Oh, they liked it. Yeah, they liked it a lot. Uh, although my son was really annoyed that they uh, they didn't. Well, spoiler alert. So if you haven't seen the movie, maybe you want to skip a couple of minutes. Stop now. Yeah, but uh, my son was annoyed that the werewolf dies in the end, and I'm like, well, what did you think was going to happen? I mean, he turns into a monster that kills people. But but uh, he was like, well, maybe they'd find a cure, you know. And I was like, well. <laughs> He's a gentle soul. He is. He's wonderful. But he loves this kind of movies. I think he liked everything up to the point where they killed the werewolf, and he was a little annoyed by that. So Fair enough. <laughs> so when we talk about werewolves, what are we going to be talking about today exactly? Because there are lots of lots of different lore, lots of different claims and beliefs. There are. Um, it's a monster. Again, I mean, this is selfish, but I really like the monster. But um, – there are factors uh, around some of the coverage we've done before that keep coming up that are sort of the the uh, rubber ducks. I think is the one of the metaphors people use for you try to sink them and they keep coming back up. Yeah, these unsinkable yep. rubber ducks, and um, one of them has to do with the the allegation that uh, the beast of Chevaudon was uh, actually a hyena. I'd like to talk about that a little bit, um, but I'd also yeah, like to talk about. Uh, uh, I thought we should also talk about the or the origin of werewolves. They uh, the the effect of the full moon. I know a lot of my research recently was um, about silver bullets in the case of Chevaudon, but um, mm-hmm. I thought maybe we could talk about the uh, the full moon in, in association with werewolves and where some of the lore right. comes from because I've been doing a lot of research and i got really focused on this silver bullet thing and i and i i still yeah, am you've been working on that for a while i think yeah. the whole time i've known you yeah i i really i'm very interested in the magical qualities of silver and i think there is some interesting uh things to discuss there so let's let's talk about some of this stuff sounds good so i guess to begin with what's the difference between a werewolf or the concept of a werewolf today and a werewolf in the early 20th century and say a werewolf maybe four to 500 years ago in Europe. Yeah, it's. I find this really interesting how the story of werewolves have changed. So I guess one of the first werewolf stories people talk about, you know, people turning from a human into a wolf has to do with the legend of, I'm not sure if it's lichen or lysen. I'm not sure how it was actually originally pronounced. both. Yeah, so... But this was a, a, a character, and this was kind of a recurring motif in uh, Greek legends and folklore and mythology. Um, people would somehow get this opportunity to have a dinner party with the gods. And they were like, oh, I'm having a dinner with the gods. And I blame this on Martha Stewart for not being alive yet. But they're trying to plan their dinner. <laughs> and they're like, what should I serve to the gods? You know... You know what would be great? You know what the gods would be like? Like I, It's cool because it's an interesting dish. And at the same time, it's, it's, it's providing us a, a test for the gods to see how, how uh, sensitive their palates are. And that mm-hmm. would be if I killed my own child and served it to the gods as a, a main course. How about that? Yeah, it's a great idea. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, these, these people, more than one myth revolves around this idea they they bring the gods in they have a wonderful dinner and the gods eat the meat and they're like whoa dude is this your son you know yeah, they can tell <laughs> i'm like yeah but what do you think of the fajita spice right am i right <laughs> so but they didn't they never care about the fajita spice they get all hung up over the fact that you killed your kid to serve to the gods they get really yeah, mad about that so that was some kind of proof of deity as well wasn't yeah it? no it's a, you know because we we did an episode about eating flesh you remember that that was uh 
they called it long uh, long pig. It's been a long time, but uh, we did an episode about ghouls. And uh, I remember doing a, a an episode on uh, cannibalism with. Uh, we talked to Carol Travis Heinkoff, who wrote a, a, a dinner with cannibals. The complete yes. history of mankind's oldest taboo, and they called it long pig. Apparently, we taste like pork. Um, but yeah, yeah. The, well, I, I think it's still done in some cultures. I think in Papua New Guinea. Yeah, still, yeah, yeah. Cannibalism it, is still practiced. It's um, curry. I think her curry curry is the disease. There's there's a, there's a a prion disease, which is where you get a recurring or repeating uh, a protein, and it can mm-hmm. cause like uh mad cow disease but it's a human born disease and that's the main reason i think that well there's obviously a social taboo uh as sort of western yeah, cultures didn't, didn't of, salvador dali want to eat his wife when after she died or oh i don't reading I, that somewhere i don't know but i'll tell you one thing about salvador dali there, there's a fantastic museum of salvador dali in uh, st petersburg florida and i oh, I'd love to see that oh my gosh it's amazing first of all the paintings in general are amazing but I had no idea how big they are. I mean, most of the stuff he mm-hmm. painted is probably what, 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 ten by twelve. I mean, and that's feet, not I've inches. I've never been able to see anything in person. Oh yeah, if you get a chance to go to St. Petersburg, you should definitely go to that museum. It's beautiful. And then, if you're a naturalist, go outside the museum and look out into the bay, and it's just all these beautiful uh, melting clocks. Uh, well, I was going to say there's there's melting clocks on the inside, and then horseshoe <laughs> crabs on the outside. the The bay is uh-huh. just full of horseshoe crabs, and wow. uh, it's really cool. But yeah, yeah, uh, Dolly's amazing. Um, mm-hmm. The whole surrealist movement is is really impressive. But um, yeah, why are we talking about Dolly? Because I've lost my track. What? <laughs> yeah, we've gone off track a little bit, but uh, yeah, just talking about the the differences uh, uh, between werewolves across time and space. <laughs> yeah, so they they do tend to change over time. Oh, so the point was, <laughs> yeah, back in the origin story, you you start out with the gods cursing people and turning them into wolves, which is a transformation. I think uh, so. As a punishment, being turned into a wolf could be problematic. There's legends where people are turned into a wolf for a few days. There's legends where people are turned into wolves for uh, a year, and mm-hmm. there's legends where um, uh, in the Satyricon, which is uh, an interesting play, um, there's a story in the Satyricon. It's told like at a dinner party. And in that story, there's a character who's a, a soldier who's going with another guy. They're traveling across the country. They stop at a graveyard. The moon is full. And this character um, goes and he takes off all his clothes. He pees in a circle around the clothes, turns into a wolf, and then goes off and attacks livestock. And later on, um, he's wounded. It's one of those classic werewolf stories where he's wounded. He's back in human form, and then people realize that the wound is identical to the one that was performed to the to the right. animal. That is a recurring theme. Although what's mm-hmm. interesting, though, is that when he pees around his clothes, his clothes turn into rocks. Um, and I guess mm-hmm. the idea is that when he's done, he can turn them back from rocks back into clothes again and put them on and then pursue the rest of his life. Uh, it's really right. unclear why he turns into a wolf. I mean, there's, there's no explanation. Like, it's, it's just a, a story told at a dinner party. But... Mm-hmm. But when Monty Summers, Montague Summers, uh, writes his story on the the werewolves um, in the 1930s, he mentions that story. He specifically mentions the satyricon. Um, so yeah, over- I think that's a recurring theme, isn't it, with uh, the the clothing as well? That yeah, uh, in, in some stories, if the wolf or the, the werewolf doesn't have the clothing to be able to transform, that he can't transform right. back into a man. It's, exactly. Some of the stories involve them um, uh, hiding their clothes. Uh, in the original, the, the the wolf man, it seems like his clothes are, uh, well, I guess not him, but the in the beginning of the story, um, uh, you know, the term gypsy has changed. Like, like it's become sort of a slur, and I don't mean it as a slur. Romany now. Yes, yeah. Romany, right. In, in the movie, they're referred to as gypsies, but there's a character, Bela, who's actually played by Bela Lugosi, I believe, uh, um, and by a dog when he's turned into wolf form, but... Uh, he he has changed, and when he he's killed, uh, Lawrence Talbot, Larry Talbot, uh, beats him to death with a silver-headed cane, and he changes back into a human, but he's wearing clothes. And when when Lawrence changes, he changes into a wolf man. He's like not it's not a full transformation. There's no explanation for why that's the case. 
but we'll talk about that later. But in the yeah, movie, and the, the it, silver it, reference again. Yeah, too. we'll get we'll get the silver reference right out of that movie. We'll talk about that. But but he is um, uh, he is cursed. And this is obviously this is fictional. But Kurt Siodmak, the guy that wrote it, said he was, you know, trying to be as historically accurate as possible. But so, somewhere it's become a curse. But yet, in between, in in the Middle Ages, there was a time when if you wanted to be a werewolf, you had to have a, a deal with the devil. So you <laughs> would uh, you would get a witch's potion, and you would smear yourself with salve. You would put on a belt made out of wolf skin, and then you would become a werewolf. And it was a deliberate act of magical evil. Uh, it would give Rather you... than a curse. Right, right. So um, that's quite a change. So it goes from being a curse of the gods to being a deliberate act. Um, and then with a few exceptions, there are uh, there's some French folklore in the Middle Ages where like the children of uh, uh, vicars, like the children of uh, pastors or church leaders, would sometimes become... Uh, werewolves and mm-hmm. so that existed in the 17 and 1800s that sort of uh, legend but in general it wasn't a curse for, for much of European history it was an act where you wanted to become a werewolf you wanted to have the power of the wolf so you mm-hmm. would uh, make a pact you'd make a potion you'd do all these things and you'd become a wolf um, we talked before on an episode about Peter Stump uh, and that famous story about him being a convicted werewolf. And that's serial sounds, killer. Exactly. That sounds like a serial killer story. Although because of the religious elements, it's possible mm-hmm. that he wasn't really a killer. It was sort of a religious persecution. I really don't right. know. But I do know well, that his finish was spectacularly horrible. Where he oh, was, yeah. gruesome. <laughs> horrible. And and that was a form of torture. I mean, that, that was done to yeah. many people's terrible but wasn't at around that time in europe uh did you have the equivalent of the the witch craze and the witch trials for werewolves as well yeah yeah i think in spain and france as yeah well. yeah absolutely yeah no it, the inquisition and the, the witch trials um and there, you know we, people have written a lot about the motivations for the witch trials and the mm-hmm. idea that they were uh, We've discussed them before. Yeah, as well. yeah, yeah. We have, and we, you can go back to our show notes. Um, Deborah Hyde. That's right. Um, that was yeah, kind of recent. That was too. fairly recent, right? But but I'll, I'll mention this. Oh no, I think that was I think that was uh, Halloween last year, so almost a year ago. Tempest Fugit, right? I mean, it, time does fly. <laughs> mm, absolutely. But um, and, and I will mention that um, uh, as the legends evolved. By the time we get up to 1941's The Wolfman movie, um, you've got the werewolf turned into, effectively, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? So, in fact, mm-hmm. Stephen King in his book, uh, Dance Macabre, he talks about uh, the types of monsters there are. And he talks about the vampire, the Frankenstein monster, and then Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And so he says, by the time you get to The Wolfman, You've basically turned this monster into a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story, wherein you have a character who is, on the one hand, when he's one way, he wants to be good, he tries to behave well, and then eventually he turns into an evil force uh, mm-hmm. against his will. But you're you're empathetic for him, like you kind of want him to overcome this in some way. I think that's fairly I, accurate. Yeah, I see the yeah. parallels. Yeah, yeah. So your research into this has included trying to figure out when the the Beast of Givardin got uh, or became associated with a silver bullet. And so you've mentioned this story a couple of times, but it's probably worth summarizing again. Yeah. So I'll put a link in the show notes to, uh, uh, to our episodes previously covering this. But okay. in, in France, uh, between 1764 and 1767, there was a period of time when France's countryside in the Givardin region was being terrorized by attacks. So when I first started looking into this, one of the questions I had was, is this even real? Like, is there any evidence this really happened? And it turns Mm. out that, yes, it absolutely really happened. And Mm. we talked with um, the author of a book uh, on the beast named Jay Smith, and we'll put a link to his book in the show notes. But he talked about uh, how this was not the first case. So what happened was... Um, 
this kind of pattern of wolves attacking the citizenry had happened numerous times before. But what had changed is that, first of all, the scale was a little bit bigger because of a lot of uh, economic and political conditions in the country at the time. And the second thing that had changed was the broadsheet newspaper had been developed. And so now there was this tabloid newspaper type story that was popularizing these rural provincial tales of of beast attacks and they mm-hmm. were highlighting all these amazing sort of uh, uh supernatural or weird qualities about the attacks in the right. same way that any kind of rumor could be propagated today in social media so mm-hmm. in, in in a very real sense this sort of parallels the way stories take off today it was early case of like an advance in the way stories could be shared through this sort of quick printing of newspapers and the newspapers mm-hmm. themselves were in competition trying to uh, increase sales by having salacious and interesting stories <laughs> like tabloids today, like tabloids today. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is now it becomes an international story because these papers can mm-hmm. be spread across the uh, Europe and, you know, anybody who can read French can read these stories. Um, and ultimately spoiler alert uh, if you listen to our coverage or read uh, Jay Smith's book, you'll discover that there's really, really good evidence that what was happening was mundane wolf attacks uh, being blown out of proportion by media coverage. But even still, you mentioned the scale of events and whether it was, I think, uh, some sources say that it was up to about 200 attacks. Yeah, so whether it's on the, the definitely the, uh, more the than 80. End. Yeah, yeah, definitely more than 80 people killed by wolves. Yeah. But whether, yeah, whether it was on the higher end or the lower end, that's just a staggering amount of people to die in, in that way. It is. Um, and I don't want to dismiss the, the, the value of life at the time, but it seemed like, uh, you know, even at the time that, that it's like, you know, it's, like, it's a shame, but other oh, are peasants, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, even back then, well, maybe especially back then, but sadly still now, if you're poor, uh, it's very easy to turn into a news story of a momentary tragedy. And it's almost like a, well, <laughs> thank God I'm not poor, right? You know, I yeah, mean, being, it's... Yeah. Being downplayed. Yeah, it, it really is. But the, the French government was uh, called in to try to uh, deal with it. They sent military forces. And then eventually they sort of had to bring it to a close, and so they're mm-hmm. like, the, it actually breaks out into about two chapters. So basically, part one is the military brings it to a close uh, when a guy uh, named Antoine kills a wolf that they decide was the beast. And mm-hmm. then later on, another Frenchman kills a different monster, beast, also just a wolf, but a big one. Uh, his name is Jean Chastel. And uh, so it's like two competing stories about who killed the beast. But if you really look past that, the evidence is it was packs of wolves all over the region. And what really stopped it was the uh, sort of uh, improvement in um, the uh, economic area and then improvement in uh, the amount of food that was available because the peasants and military were killing wolves all over the place, which meant that the wolves would have been able to have enough game to survive because there have been smaller numbers. And so eventually you would basically just beat the wolves to death until the point that their population decreased so that the, they were able to be sustained without killing humans. So, right. Yeah. And those are usual factors for things like a decrease in, in superstition as well. Just, economic improvements yeah and things like insurance even but you know it, it, i've i've if you go back to those links i'll put this in the show notes as well there's mm-hmm. uh, there's this weird thing that happens within the story where it's it's got these supernatural elements because the beast seems to be able to shrug off bullet shots the idea that someone missed is uh is never really considered. I mean, we're talking about a time when, <laughs> like, rifling in a barrel was still a big deal. I mean, this is the 17, right. 1760s. Uh, we're talking about from 1764 to 1767. This was not mm-hmm. the height of the efficacy of gun barrels, right? So, um, people missing secondhand is, information as like, well. I didn't miss the beast just shrugged off my shot. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's that powerful and strong. Right. It's amazing. Right. So it's definitely the monster's problem, not mine. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, but this this idea that there was a supernatural element or that a single beast was responsible for all the kills 
is still cherished in cryptozoology today. It's crazy. Well, I, don't, I shouldn't say it's crazy, but it is outlandish to me that people would consider this to be a potentially uh, uh, supernatural or uh, strange monster, yet they do. Yep. And there's another theory that uh, has been around for a while too, one that just keeps popping up again, uh, and that is that the beast was a hyena. So could a hyena have been involved in these attacks? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. Uh, Jay Smith, again, uh, I'll put a link to this in the show notes as well, though it's, this, this article is behind a paywall, so I'm not sure how easily it can be reached. But he wrote an additional article called Dreadful Enemies, The Beast, the Hyena, and the Natural History in the Enlightenment, uh, or in Natural History in the Enlightenment. And it's a really interesting article. It's, it's about 30 pages long. Mm-hmm. Um but in that article, he explains uh, the he gives some context to this hyena idea. So, like if you're if you're a modern person, and you're reading this, and you're thinking, "Oh, was a hyena the beast of Givadon? Like, look at the qualities mm-hmm. of the monster. Like, what what would make you think hyena? And the number one thing was, I guess, uh, in a lot of the victims, there was disarticulation of the skeleton. So as as these people mm-hmm. were killed, uh, their skeletons got disarticulated into pieces and. The hyena, as an animal, has probably the strongest bite force of any land mammal. Um, it can bite into bones like they were candy, right, and get right mm. to the marrow. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why people bring the hyena into this. is uh, Right. Uh, or at least I did think that until I read this article. But what I discovered uh, w- by reading his article is that the hyena already had an almost supernatural quality to it within uh, Renaissance uh, Enlightenment uh, uh, biological thinkers like the naturalists of the time. And the reason for that is there were all these really interesting uh, historical documents related to hyenas, and they almost had supernatural qualities. because Europeans who were really interested in sort of uh, quantifying and explaining things in naturalistic terms at the time mm-hmm. uh, uh, were, were looking into documents that were written hundreds or thousands of years ago and had been reprinted thanks to uh, the Gutenberg Press. And I, I guess I should take here a little side moment. So when we think about the Enlightenment, um, in this period of uh, so many interesting and important things came out of it, historically speaking. I mean, mm-hmm. we're talking about almost the verge of uh, the birth of democracy. Um, we're talking about the birth of science uh, as it's understood today. At the same time... Movement away from religion to some extent. <laughs> exactly. Uh, people are moving away from biblical literalism to deism, where they like, I don't know if the Bible is literally true, but, uh, you know, a guiding force, you know, there's something out there uh, it wouldn't be until Darwin comes along with his theory of natural selection. There's always this question out there of like, well, if if there is no God, then how do you explain the complexity of nature, right? So so until that mechanism of natural selection came along, uh, I think the uh, this period of deism was uh, completely justified. Um, you, you, you've got to explain the complexity of nature in some way. But they didn't have a mechanism for that yet. But what they did realize was that there were a lot of things that were really complicated that seemed almost supernatural. And they also had this thing that happened where you had the Gutenberg Press come out. And it starts off by Gutenberg selling uh, or, or helping promote or print indulgences for the church. That's like the first big uh, killer app for the printing press is, <laughs> is to basically help the church print up indulgences which are written documents wherein you can pay money and be forgiven for sins big deal but huge deal but later on people take the printing press and they're like well what can we do with this we can write books uh, but what's the cheapest thing to do is to take these uh ancient texts from aristotle and plato and all these people we've got these manuscripts we could turn these into small volumes put them on the printing press and this will be you know great successes as printing efforts, right? So they're printing these things in Greek, they're printing them in Latin, um, they're printing them in German, they're printing them in different languages, but they're basically taking old texts that have survived thanks to the preservation of monks and various other people, and they're taking this crude knowledge 
and printing out in little volumes that you can carry around in your saddlebags or whatever. People are building libraries. People are sharing information. It's very much like the internet. Suddenly you have this very huge, much. You huge spread of information that was never available before. And if you are a, a gentleman, farmer, or a, a landowner, and you have a manor house, you got to have a library, right? Mm -hmm. So um, you're, you're building these library. Sorry, excuse me. You're building these libraries and you're sharing stories about uh, animals and far off places where you don't have the money to go investigate yourself. You're just reprinting something that was sent uh, to you by people who took scrolls and other information and turned them into these early books. So right. this is where a lot of this information comes from. You get all these old stories about hyenas and they mm -hmm. themselves may be stories that were told by sailors or whatever. Um, so, uh, and I'll tell you one more interesting thing is uh, people believed Aristotle. Oh my gosh. So back in the day, people believed Aristotle in much the same way they believed in the Bible. Like you might write a criticism about the Bible, but it's going to be about, well, look at this text and look at that text. Here's a possible explanation that will sort of smooth things out. But you wouldn't say the Bible's wrong, right? And you would similarly, you wouldn't say that Aristotle was wrong. You just accepted it. You might write, right. you might write commentary or a lot of things, but you wouldn't write uh, contradiction. And direct experimentation was a relatively new thing. So um, ideas about the, the the hyena included the idea that it could duplicate human speech, that it could bend backward. Oh, excuse me, that it couldn't bend backwards. But although that that legend got flipped around that its eyes contain gems i guess the the eye color of hyenas is quite spectacular um hmm. hyenas have strange genitalia too the female uh, hyena the female hyena has a, a pseudo penis and there went our explicit tag uh so <laughs> instead of a like a very obvious vagina she has something that sort of sticks out uh it's a little peculiar i don't think i'll put a picture in the show notes but if you want to look no, into it probably yeah <laughs> <laughs> but but people thought strange things like hyenas might change gender or they were all males because of this strange pseudo penis. And like when she has her first pups, I don't know if they're pups or kittens. I'm honestly not sure about that. But whenever she has her first babies, I think that whole thing gets kind of torn apart as the babies come out. Uh, it doesn't sound very pleasant to be a hyena, I'll be honest. Um, no, it doesn't. But yeah. so I've just... <laughs> With you talking about the the increase in scientific thinking, do you think that this uh, hyena theory, in a sense, was a kind of example of uh, of scientific thinking gone wrong? Well, what what seemed to happen, according to Smith's research, is that people, uh, I guess, this actually started with a, uh, a a wolf killing outbreak in the Lyon region before Gévaudan, about ten years before. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And people thought, because it, very similarly, similarly, there were um, people thinking that a hyena was responsible because of its bite force and a few other factors. So when uh, people were writing about it, they were writing about the possibility that it was a hyena. And so when Gévaudan uh, had its outbreak, the hyena story comes up again. And... Uh, it just it doesn't fit exactly because there's no explanation for why there would be a hyena. So what happens is uh, uh, 
Smith's, not me, obviously, but Jay Smith's, his hypothesis is that because it was happening at the same time as the Enlightenment, and people mm-hmm. wanted a naturalistic explanation for why these killing stories you know, were happening, rather oh. than posit that the people who were witnessing peculiar qualities to the kills, uh, rather than idea that the people were mistaken, they said, what naturally existing animal most closely matches the qualities and characteristics we're seeing? And the answer is hyena. Because it, it a lot of the stories and legends about it matched up very nicely. But uh-huh. that's all based on folklore and a naturalistic tendency and a, a, a sort of interest in preserving the sort of dark and mysterious and romantic qualities of nature. So it's a long article. Again, I'll post a link to it in the show notes, but I'll say that he makes a very compelling case that what we're really seeing is an example of people looking for naturalistic explanations at the same time wanting to uh, accept all the peculiar reports. And and, and in that sense, the, the, the hyena works. But... But Smith's book, his his really really well researched and, and explained book, makes a better case. I think that what's really going on is wolves in conjunction with uh, sort of conflated stories and, and peasant based folklore uh, are are expanding the qualities of the wolf uh, in a sort of narrative thread that makes it supernatural. That it's not really warranted. Uh, so, so yeah, wolves make a better explanation for the whole case. So why do you think that that theory is still around today if that has been debunked? How come people are still saying, oh, well, we need to look at the hyena as a possible... Honestly, I think it's because uh, in a, in the short run, uh, like if you're not really digging deep, the hyena does have the bite force to do a lot of the things that happen. But okay. you don't have to have that bite force if you've got multiple wolves pulling a person apart. Sure. You know, you know yeah. I, th- there's, there's a lot, you know, so... I. It, it's just, it's cool. It's it's way more interesting to have some rogue animal like a lion, like in in the in the the movie uh, Brotherhood of Wolves. Uh, they have like a, a lion wearing armor or something, which is really it's a great movie, by the way. Uh, but uh, that that's uh, not really a historically accurate movie. <laughs> and, and, and and wolves is kind of boring. I mean, there's multiple breakouts of this exact thing happening and it, it wolves explain it completely naturalistically but that's not right. nearly as fascinating and creepy i mean at one point uh smith points out that by the time they get to the point where they've got actual hyena examples that they've brought into the national museum they even when they put them up on display they write like placards for it that talk about the the case of Gévaudan and leon and the sort of really? supernatural qualities because in the same way that you have Jurassic Park now, so 25 years ago, Jurassic Park comes out, they give like the best dinosaurs they possibly can. And then mm-hmm. later on, we realized, no, 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 these dinosaurs would have feathers. They would look way different. But they never update them because that's the that's the community story. The community story is they look like this cool scaled thing and changing them into feathered doesn't make any sense or whatever. But right. <laughs> so hold on to the legend because that's what's going to get people to pay their, you know, francs to come in here and look at these examples, right? And yeah, there's there's definitely truth to that. You got to follow you the were, money. You mentioned uh, the Brotherhood of the Wolf. I and, did. Um, so with that movie, how did that affect the the folklore more recently? Obviously, you know, I haven't seen a lot of fallout from that. It's a fantastic movie. It's it's all in French. Um, and it's got spectacular choreography, uh, good fight scenes, and uh, a cool premise. I really like it a lot, but I haven't seen that that's bled out into the folklore very much, which I- I'm honestly thankful for. Uh, I haven't seen like a sudden ins- upsurge in uh, lions being the, the the candidate. But what I have seen is a continuous uh, resurgence of the idea that it might be a hyena. And I think, okay, yeah. I think realistically it's, now to be fair, even recently, yeah, very recently, like just a few weeks ago, I saw a, a really interesting online discussion about this and on Facebook and it was, yeah, uh, you said it was in a skeptical context as well. Yeah. And, and it's, um, it's, a, it's, it's brought up again and again because 
you know, would it make sense that it was hyenas? Um, I don't know. Honestly, uh, the ones with gemstones for eyes. Yes. (laughs) Well, I just think the, the hyena in general, uh, you know, it's, it's got an incredible bite force, but humans are not its primary, uh, prey. And I don't like the idea of a one, you know, one or more making their way to Europe and, and, uh, existing, uh, is very unlikely like for it to migrate from Africa. They did have them brought over on ships, for menageries, but uh, that that doesn't really account for it. And um, and there were prehistoric hyenas that would have been great candidates, but they weren't alive at the time of this case. So, uh, but wolves were, and wolves could account for everything. So uh, you know, Occam's razor. I know everybody loves to have me bring that up. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the wolves fit nicely without requiring any supernatural elements. Or they do yeah, absolutely. So. So I guess we should get back to the, the silver reference. Sure. So in your, your research, did you figure out when silver bullets became the go-to method for killing werewolves? Yeah. So surprisingly, it seems like it was around 1882, uh, 1883, somewhere in the, in the 1880s, that silver bullets became part of the folklore for killing werewolves. Um, the... Uh, idea of silver killing shape changers had existed before that. We've talked a little bit about that before. It tied in closely to witch folklore. So witches were primarily turning into hares or cats. Um, a few of them would turn into dogs and very rarely into wolves. But the folklore around shape changers was if you wanted to kill a shape changer, a silver bullet would kill a witch. And I suppose the reason for that is because silver typically doesn't corrode. Like, uh, apparently, if my research is accurate, the fact that silver corrodes readily now has more to do with the Industrial Revolution. All the uh, the changes in the atmosphere that have happened in human lives uh, since humans have started burning coal and other things uh, has changed the atmosphere to make it more acidic and, and make it so that silver turns dark quicker. But apparently in ancient times, silver tended to stay more silvery because the air didn't have those elements in it. The silver is associated with purity because it typically didn't change form. Now people have to polish the silver to keep it clean, but that may be a representation of the, uh, or maybe an effect of the changes in the uh, atmosphere related to the industrial age. Sorry, I was going to ask a side question. I don't know if you know, but uh, you've heard of the science or supposed science of alchemy of uh changing or people who attempted to change base metals into gold was there ever any kind of equivalent like that for silver or was it just not worth enough i don't think it was worth enough yeah i mean silver is valuable uh and and people like that valuable right right exactly but it was uh people typically didn't have silver bullets what would happen because back in the the day right before they made rifled uh barrels in Mm -hmm. which was the time when people were shooting uh silver into wolves people would take a button off of their coat, and they would fashion that into a bullet and fire it, or they would make something like a shotgun blast, where they would take you know anything they could find of silver. Um, I think by the time you get to um, the uh, the Werewolf of uh, Paris, which is a novel by Guy, or maybe Guy Guy Indoor, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, he has there in that story they take a, cru- a silver crucifix and melt it. And uh, have it blessed by an archbishop, you know. But even that is not what actually kills the werewolf in the story. And that's 1933. The idea that a silver bullet would kill a werewolf was the 1880s. But what really cemented it, even though that's not the method that was used in the movie, was the Wolfman in 1941. And in the introduction to this episode, uh, I have a little excerpt where we're talking about the... uh... Okay, so by the time we get to the, the... the Wolfman in 1941, uh, Kurt Siodmak, who who actually writes that show, he makes it explicit that the the silver bullets required. Although he also mentions, well, he doesn't mention, but in this case, the Gypsy tells uh, Lawrence Talbot that only a silver bullet or a silver knife, or like in his case, the head of a silver cane, such as he carries, will kill a werewolf. A werewolf can be killed only with a silver bullet or a silver knife or a stick with a silver handle. And so the silver cane kills the werewolf, but that's that's not in the folklore until the 1880s. Even so, it's um it's not until 
1883, I think that we find a case where the silver bullet specifically shoots a werewolf. So it's it's really a relatively recent uh, introduction into the folklore. It ties into the witchcraft, okay. but it's really just not part of the actual normal uh, legends. So in the sense that legends are theoretically based on true stories, uh, mm -hmm. uh, this is a, a pure fiction. I mean, it, it, it's sort of right. incorporated, but Siadmak adds it in, um, in, in explicitly into the Wolfman. And then by the, the sequel to that, which is, well, one of the sequels to that is uh, Frankenstein versus the Wolfman. And that one adds in the element of the full moon. Um, going okay. all the way back to Satyricon, they mentioned the full moon, but it's not until mm -hmm. Frankenstein uh, versus the Wolfman uh, that you actually explicitly have a story where the full moon is responsible for the transformation. So that's, an, I just find that fascinating because basically by the 1940s, when you get Siadmak involved, Mm -hmm. Wolfman lore or werewolf lore is completely transformed by fiction because movies reach out to people in a way that folklore simply doesn't have the speed. I mean, you know, right. movies sure. movies can spread folklore faster than anything. So, mm -hmm. uh, so before that period that you're talking about, where the silver is introduced as being the the material or weapon of choice, um, were there any other materials that were ever specified as being suitable for killing a werewolf? No. Prior to the introduction of silver being required, it seemed like uh, a sword, uh, a bullet. I mean, if you look mm -hmm. at even as uh, I mean, as you think about this, um, you've got the werewolf of Paris was 1933, and in that story, which is set earlier than 1933, it's set I think in the 1700s. The mm -hmm. werewolf, even though they feature a silver bullet in the story, that's not what kills the werewolf. The werewolf actually jumps out of an insane asylum and tries to land on a mattress, <laughs> like a like which is a, the Wiley Coyote method, and he misses the mattress. As you do, right? <laughs> and so he falls to his death. So no silver mm -hmm. required. Just don't hit mm -hmm. the mattress, and off you go. Yeah, it sounds like yeah, killing Rasputin or something. Lots of attempts. Yeah, I mean, like you know, by the time you get to modern times, you get things like uh, the classic, uh, the uh, uh, the the Monster Squad, which I love. They have a scene in that movie where they blow the monster, they blow the the Wolfman up with dynamite, and all the pieces mm -hmm. reassemble because it wasn't a silver bullet. Wolfman's got not. But that that sort of. Uh, I, it's kind of like it's, werewolves are actually much better off than say vampires because vampires, Jiminy Christmas, they've got a lot of ways to kill them. I mean, yeah. they've got a lot of ways. Like, like you romanticize it all you want, you don't want to be a Garlic. vampire because everybody's got a way to kill you or stop you or stall you. It's ridiculous. Stabbing through the heart. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it's nuts. Well, we should go back to uh, the moon. And, uh, we should go to the moon, Karen. And, <laughs> to the moon, Alice. <laughs> so, I was going to say, the, uh, the, the, the moon, uh, like I say, all the way back into the Satyricon, was, uh, a full moon was mentioned. But it's <laughs> not until Frankenstein meets the Wolfman that you get the, uh, the, the, the full moon being required for the transformation. Uh, in that movie, he also explicitly mentions that the full moon is required to make this, the shapeshift. But mm -hmm. but while I was researching this episode, I got curious about this whole idea of like barking at the moon or howling at the moon. So I did mm -hmm. a little research, and I was able to trace the phrase um, bark at the moon all the way back to 1663. It may go back okay. further than that, but um, – it, In a slightly different form or something. Yeah, yeah, and I was only searching English. But uh, bark at the moon goes down to um, – Cry a phrase from an article. It says, cry down ceremony and reverence as dogs bark at the moon. And then in 1776, I saw a phrase, we need not like dogs bark at the moon. Uh, and, and do they? <laughs> well, they don't. No, no, not really. So uh, this, this, this folklore goes back at least to the 1600s, though. Uh, this idea that, um, that, that wolves or dogs would howl at the moon. Uh, some mm -hmm. people speculate that this is because they lean their heads back and, and point to the sky. But this appears to be not related to the phases of the moon. Like, So they do this year-round when they want to communicate with each other. There's a kind of iconic silhouette of a dog with the moon in the background. Oh, yeah, and, as yeah. you say, the dog with its head back barking Absolutely, or yeah. howling. 
but that is that is not backed up by any of the actual biology or research. Um, and uh, in in eighteen ten, I saw this cool thing. It says uh, uh, there was a uh, Encyclopedia Londonesis, uh, which was uh, uh, Encyclopedia. Lentonesis or the Universal Dictionary of the Arts, and it talked about the phrase to bark at the moon, and it says, uh, the design of this proverb is to expose the folly of those who are given to threaten or rail at their superiors or those who are out of their reach to as little purpose as it is for a dog to pretend to insult or terrify the moon by barking. Now, I say that, I found that interesting because that's 1810. To bark at the moon was basically like, you know, you know, it's about as effective as shooting a bird at the guy in front of you while you're driving down the highway. It doesn't do anything, right? <laughs> uh, it, it's it's a it's a it means an ineffective act of defiance at a, at a power who's over you, right? right? But but by the time you get to the 1980s, bark at the moon means you're crazy. You know, mm-hmm. howling howling at the moon, barking. Right. The moon, it's become a synonym for you know, you're barking mad, right? So Right, yes. It, yep. it, and and I was um gonna ask you about that too with the werewolf transformation transformation uh during a full moon. Do you think that that goes back to the the whole idea of terms like lunacy and lunatic and the belief that uh mental illness was some kind of periodic insanity that was based on the face uh, of yeah. the moon? Yeah, I honestly do. I think it may tie into that folklore. Um <laughs> I, I wasn't able to find any specific like, you know, here's a clear example of how it changes. But that that sort of urban legend mentality of that the moon can drive people mad and the idea that lunacy literally has the the word Luna in it, um, yeah. it it it's a hard to kill piece of folklore. I mean, perfectly or you know fairly reasonable rational people still believe that 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 the moon influences people's behavior. Oh yeah, or there are more cases of people uh, going to the emergency ward and hospitals during full moons and right. And, and just so, in case our listeners haven't been made aware of this, that literally does not stack up to the empirical data. And there's a perfectly cool and you know it's very logical, rational explanation. To say, oh well, with a full moon, you'd have more light, therefore people would do more crazy things, or people would might attempt crimes. You know, but it seems like if you're a criminal, you don't want to be seen. Maybe it makes more sense to do things in the dark. It doesn't matter which of those is true. The reality is there's no empirical explanation, or there's no empirical data to support the idea that the moon causes uh, increase in. Uh, Bad behavior. And I think uh, I think we've mentioned before Scott Lillianfeld and and his uh, other colleagues had put together a very good um, article about this in their book. I think it's fifty myths and mysteries about psychology. Or I don't quote me on the title. Yeah, Maybe you know what? Find... If, if if you can find that, we'll throw a link in the show notes. Okay, so you also mentioned something about a science fair project. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so I, I wasn't able to convince my kids to do this science fair project. But so while I was doing research on the, the magical qualities of silver, I ran across some folklore that said that uh, American pioneers, when they were crossing the plains, they would put silver coins into their milk jug because the silver would preserve the milk longer, like the milk would last longer. Now, this is in a time when this is before the, the invention of pasteurization. Um, mm-hmm. I don't remember if I've covered this on Monster Talk, but I did a bunch of research into pasteurization. I think so, yeah. So, so basically, the discovery of pasteurization. Uh, so, let me just back out just a second. We say pasteurization because we're talking about Louis Pasteur. Louis Pasteur mm-hmm. uh, published his explanation about how pasteurization works in the 1880s, I believe. Uh, and his work came out of like beer research. So uh, people who want to have a beer with their show, you know, this is a great time to drink it, take a drink. You know, so <laughs> we should do a show on him because he was a fascinating guy. He really was. So what he did was not only did he figure out uh, uh, why pasteurization works, but he like did a lot of mathematical explanations so that people who were in the brewing business and wanted to preserve food could understand what temperatures to get the food up to and all that sort of thing. And, and he used the germ theory of medicine to explain what was actually happening. But it wasn't Pasteur who really discovered how to preserve food through heating. It actually happened uh, in the late 1790s, uh, early 1800s. Napoleon was looking for a way to preserve food uh, for his troops. And uh, there was uh, a 
researcher who had discovered that by heating food in old champagne bottles, he could make the food stay preserved. He didn't know the mechanism, but he knew how to make it work. And so he was able to basically store food in bottles uh, by heating mm-hmm. it, and it lasted a long time, right? And so he effectively got a big prize from from uh, Napoleon. And so the di- you know it took almost a hundred years for them to realize why it worked, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in the meantime, before that, there were folklore methods for making things work. And these silver coins, people would put high silver content coins into their milk, allegedly, and it would make the milk mm-hmm. last longer. Now, I tried to track this origin of this myth down. And I found okay. uh, some examples of this story in folklore in Europe, but it was mm-hmm. talking about American pioneers. I couldn't find any American examples, but the, the question remains, does silver actually have an efficacious effect in the, mm-hmm. by putting coins in the milk? Will it actually last longer? And I thought, well, you could actually do a pretty easy experiment about this. You get some high silver content coins, probably from before 1950 in the US, if you get early 1800s, it's even better. Because in more recent times, the American silver coins usually aren't silver. That's neither here nor there. But anyway, you go get these older coins. You put them into a Petri dish along with some raw milk. It can't be pasteurized milk, so you're going to have to have a cow. Uh, (laughs) And basically the question is, if you take some without silver and you take some with the silver coins, do the ones with silver coin uh, cause a a, a Petri dish to uh, be slower at developing bacterial growth? Now... That may sound like something that's kind of nutty, but in reality, uh, silver in its most pure form, uh, especially in microscopic form, actually can have an antibacterial effect. This is an actually known medical factor. Um, That's known as colloidal silver. (laughs) Well, it's not, actually. Colloidal (laughs) silver, yeah, no, that's a good... That's funny. If you want to turn yourself into a Smurf, drink up. But colloidal silver <laughs> yeah. has not been shown to have any real medical effect. But real uh, silver threads is now used. Um, you know, this is a long conversation. I probably it's probably outside the scope of what we should cover here. But but in my research, it gets really interesting because some of the early um, discoveries about the uh, efficacy of silver. Uh, involved uh, some of the earliest gynecological research. Unfortunately, a lot of that research was done on slaves. Uh, and the mm-hmm. guy involved uh, is a very controversial figure. And they're trying to mm-hmm. pull down his statue and lots of other things. Uh, so uh, he, he uh, is, uh, you know, he's, he's definitely being reevaluated because... As he should. <laughs> like, silver really does have antibacterial effects in certain mm-hmm. forms. I'm very suspicious about the idea that silver coins could actually have this effect. But I could be wrong. Unfortunately, I've never had the time or the, the money. It's not a lot of money, but to actually do this experiment, it would be interesting to actually do this experiment and find out. It would. Do silver coins actually affect the bacterial growth rate in milk? So Yeah, that would be a fun project. But you know the best way to preserve anything, don't you? A pyramid, a, right? Put it, put it in a pyramid. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you read my mind. Yes, I did. Actually, I did read your mind. <laughs> uh, I guess to get back to the topic of werewolves, anyway, are, are there any other new werewolf facts or folklore that you want to discuss before we end the interview? Well, we fit on some of it. I wanted to mention that uh, the first explicit example of a, a, a full moon being required for transformation. Uh, appears to be from Kurt Siadmak and uh, from uh, Frank Semmes, the Wolfman. Okay. And um, we've talked about bark at the moon and, mm-hmm. and, more, and that wolves don't howl at the moon. That was the main – I, I wanted to make sure we hit those myths because they're very common myths. Uh, they really are. You hear yeah, those all the time. All the time. And, I mean, it, what's more iconic than a wolf howling at the moon? Except that mm-hmm. it isn't. It's talking to its friends, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in yeah. my neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> at two AM. <laughs> yeah, coyotes as well. Coyotes, dogs, yeah. and wolves. So yeah. Oh, you say coyotes. I hear coyotes a lot around here. <laughs> well, I am from the south, but we do have them. we've had them in my neighborhood, so they're all over. They they are a seriously uh, uh hardy and impressive species. And around my parts, <laughs> these things these things eat so well they look like like you know, they're slightly, quite big. They, big. they look like scaled down wolves. They're really impressive. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. To close, we, we always have a, a question um, that we close with. And uh, I guess this is a modified version because it's us. 
But we're getting close to Halloween now. So are you going to be watching any werewolf movies this year to celebrate? Yeah, I'm definitely going to be rewatching um, The Howling. I, I We watched, uh, because again, I mentioned my marriage, but uh, they, we watch uh, American Werewolf in London quite a bit around here. Uh, uh-huh. I, ha- I haven't watched The Howling in quite a while. And then um, there's a couple of uh, the House of Frankenstein, uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, and um, th- th- there's um, a few others that are uh, these sort of uh, iconic uh, werewolf movies I haven't had a chance to watch in a while. Yeah. yeah. So uh, oh, that sounds good. You're gonna be busy. Yeah. No, I, I hope to be anyway. So. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, let's wind up. Uh, It was was great talking to you about werewolves. Uh, This was a lot of fun. Yeah, this is a fun topic. And I think uh, our listeners love anything to do with werewolves. So this Uh, is a good one. And I hope people find this information transformative. And pass it on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that one almost slipped by. Almost. All right. (laughs) Okay, Karen, thanks a lot for doing this. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Monster Dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. You just heard a discussion about werewolf lore, hyenas, silver, and the moon. Links to our previous episodes about wolves and werewolf lore are in the show notes at monstertalk.org, along with more information about the real and legendary properties of silver. If you end up doing any science experiments around this legendary preservative power of silver coins, please let us know. Our contact information is on our website. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine, and the opinions expressed in this show are those of myself and my co-host and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. As a reminder, I'll be at CryptidCon in Kentucky this weekend, so if you make it by, please drop by and say hello and hear my talk on Saturday, where I'll be discussing the Kelly Hopkinsville Goblin case. If you're going to be in Frankfort, Kentucky this September, you can catch me speaking at the second annual CryptidCon on the weekend of September 9th and 10th. This will be at the Capitol Plaza Hotel in Frankfurt, and you can get tickets at cryptidcon.com. They've got quite a lineup of cryptozoology and UFO guests this year, including Cliff and Bobo from Finding Bigfoot, Linda Godfrey of Dogman fame, Bob Gimlin, one half of the Patterson-Gimlin film team, Seth Breedlove of Small Town Monsters, and many more. And of course, me, Blake Smith, host of Monster Talk, where I'll be talking about the Kelly Hopkinsville Kentucky Goblins, right there in Kentucky. I hope to see you there. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as the donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Save the date for a colossal PsyCon 2018. Bigger venue, bigger stars, bigger ideas, bigger fun. Las Vegas, October the 18th to the 21st, 2018. PsyCon is already one of the planet's premier skeptical conferences where hundreds of critical thinkers come to Las Vegas, the city of illusions, to hear from the leading lights of science and skepticism. For 2018, we want PsyCon to be bigger than ever. We've even booked a bigger hotel. Come to Las Vegas at the Westgate Resort and Casino to see the brilliant and hilarious Stephen Fry on stage with Richard Dawkins. An opening night talk by Stephen Pinker on the ideas behind his new book, Enlightenment Now. The triumphant return of James the Amazing Randy. Plus, New York Times science writer Carl Zimmer 
psychologist and memetics expert Susan Blackmore, the Cybabe Yvette Dontremont, virologist and advocate for science-based medicine Paul Offit, and many, many more, along with comic musician George Rubb, serving as Master of Ceremonies, a magic show from Banachek, author book signings, and of course, a Halloween costume party. It's true, conspiracy theorists, quacks peddling fake medicine, and the deniers of evolution, climate change, and vaccine science are bigger threats than ever. With PsychOn 2018, let's show them that they have just met their match. We'll see you in Las Vegas. For more information and to book your tickets, visit csiconference.org. That's psiconference.org. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. As always, sincerely, thank you for listening. to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. I want you to turn this into a silver bullet. You want a silver bullet, eh? Nicest piece of work I ever done, I think. Ought to be pretty accurate. Oh, Tech, you're gonna shoot a 44 bullet at anyway. It'll be not a silver. How about a werewolf? Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big. 